Welcome to the Pepperell Baptist Podcast, where we seek to equip the church to make disciples of the Lord Jesus among all ages and in all places. So take out your Bible and a pen, and let's jump into the Word together once again. All right. Brother Scott was, was halfway joking. I have a page and a half of notes to not, so let's dive into it. I promise you, it doesn't mean it's going to be longer. That's more for my benefit than yours. Uh, this is a notoriously tricky passage, and uh, so we're going to do our best to make sense of it and draw some application from it. And uh, we'll dive into it here together. I, I remember the first time I ever preached this passage, just to kind of give you a little background. This is not the title of the message tonight. I was preaching it to some students uh, who were high school students, and the title of the message was How to Grow Up in Church and Still Go to Hell. Uh, so it was a pretty emboldened message, and uh, I'm not preaching that message. It's not a little bit different context, right? <laughs> a little bit different context, so you, you change it as you go along, but uh, still just such a, such a difficult passage to interpret. Do I? I have a quote for that. My grandfather used to tell me that going to church makes you as much of a believer standing in a garage makes you a car. Amen. That's a lot of truth to that you for sure. To practice what you're doing. And we'll see some of that, I think, in this passage here tonight. So let, let's dive into it. Hebrews, beginning a new chapter. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Let me read this for us and we'll dive into it together. Therefore... Since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news, just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them, since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest, even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Again, in that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day. Today, he he specified this speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Hard passage Mm -hmm. in all kinds of ways. And you know, I think one of the more difficult things about this passage is is you begin to ask the question, how am I supposed to interpret these 11 verses? How do I begin to understand what's going on here? And, and I'll tell you what I think is one of the more difficult things about this passage. Who do all these pronouns refer to? You might have caught on to that. There's a lot of like, 
Well, you feel like you're being pulled in all kinds of different directions. You're, you're talking about they. You're talking about us. You're talking about you. You're talking about we. You're talking about them. You're talking about those. My, it's, it's difficult to follow. I think is what one of the reasons it makes this passage so notoriously difficult. It's, it's difficult to follow unless we recognize that there is a story in the background of this passage. It's easier if you've just read Numbers. <laughs> exactly. There's a story in the background of this passage. He's actually quoting verbatim Psalm 95, which is referring to what Troy mentioned, the narrative in Numbers. So what's the story that stands behind these 11 verses? It's the story of what we often call the wilderness generation, uh, which is recorded in that passage from Exodus really until about Numbers chapter 14. It's this story about a group of people who die on the wrong side of the Jordan. It's tragic. It's a tragic story. And it serves as a lesson so often in the New Testament. The New Testament authors love to refer back to the wilderness generation as an example of what not to do. They died on the wrong side of the Jordan. So let me summarize the wilderness generation story for you and you'll You'll pick up and you'll know most of it, but it helps, I think, to see it all together. We begin in Egypt where the people of Israel are in slavery to the Egyptian master, suffering horrible oppression. But God raises up a deliverer. Who is that deliverer? Moses. Uh, the man Moses grows up even in Pharaoh's household, uh, attempts to do the exodus on his own, thinking that the people would understand, but they didn't. He actually murdered an Egyptian and had to flee the country. But God brings him back. And when God brings him back, God begins to deliver his people from slavery. He begins working on their behalf. Ten plagues of magnificent power showing the mighty, mighty arm of God. And it's successful. That's my kid's sake. <laughs> it's successful. God brings the people out of Egypt after the ten plagues. They get to the Red Sea, and uh-oh, here comes Pharaoh and his chariots chasing up behind them, and they're in danger. Moses, what have you done? You're going to kill us. And then God splits the Red Sea. The people go over safety. They're, they're seeing the mighty hand of God work right in front of their eyes. I love what Moses tells the people at the Red Sea. Hush. You have nothing to fear. Only watch the salvation that the Lord will work on your behalf today. And God does. He splits the Red Sea. They walk over in safety. And then the Lord slams the ocean back down on Pharaoh and his armies. And the Israelites see the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And then they begin their journey towards the promised land. Towards Canaan. But they have a pit stop first on the way. A little place called Mount Sinai. You read about it in Exodus chapter 19. You see a theophany there, which is where God just makes himself specially known to people in a very unique way. The mountain was shaking. You could hear trumpet blasts in the background. Fire descended on top of Sinai, and God gave his people the law. Here is how you are to live in my presence. And then they began to journey onwards. From Sinai to Canaan. There's some things that happened in between there, but nonetheless, Just a few hundred. <laughs> the Lord graciously provides for them all along the way. He gives them water from a rock on two occasions, manna, quail. He's consistently providing for his people. 
been given a miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, and it's understandable why he gets upset with what happens next. So, yes, there's some frustration there. The Lord has worked mildly math. They saw the Lord work. Kind of like parenting. Exactly, <laughs> right? We, we get to Kadesh Barnea, Numbers chapter 14. They send in the ten spies. And only two come back, Joshua and Caleb, and say, we got this. Have y'all saw what God has done for us all the way here? And the rest of them say, no way. There's giants in those lands. We seem like grasshoppers to them. They say, stone those two. Stone Moses and Aaron and send us back to Egypt. And then God shows up and punishes that generation to wandering 40 years in the wilderness where they die on the wrong side of the Jordan River. It's a tragic story. And it serves as a lesson here. Don't be like them. And that story, I think, as we look at Hebrews chapter 4, in my mind as I'm trying to understand it, it really looks like a canvas picture that you would hang up on the wall. And as you're reading Hebrews chapter 4, these first 11 verses... You need to be looking back up at this story as you read, looking back up to see how it's interacting with each other along the way. So what am I supposed to learn from this passage as I'm looking at the story of the wilderness generation? Well, I think the first thing we would say is this. People who believe God's word also obey God's word. We see that so clearly. Predominantly through the negative example of the wilderness generation, right? They didn't believe God's word. Therefore, they didn't enter the land as God had instructed them to do. They didn't obey because they didn't believe that God was able to deliver what he had promised. It's very obvious when you read Numbers chapter 13 through 14. They didn't obey God's call to enter Canaan because they failed to believe God's word of promise. They disbelieved because of all the obstacles. There's giants there. There's Canaanites there. There's Amorites there. There's Midianites there. We can't do this. So they don't enter because they do not believe. And then as you look at the canvas, the picture, the story, you see that. You look back here at verses 2 through 3 in the Hebrews chapter 4. For we also have received the good news, just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For we who have believed enter the rest. Verses 2-3 explicitly draws a clear distinction between them and we. Between that story and our story as believers, as Christians, as professing believers in God's word, through Jesus Christ, the distinction between believing and entering and disbelieving and not entering is obedience. That's the distinction that draws here in this text. There's one difference between people who believe and those who do not believe. And the difference is those who believe obey God's word. People who believe God's word also obey God's word. And then we come to verses 4 through 5, and we're still kind of looking back and forth between the story of the wilderness generation and what's going on here in this passage. And as I read verses 4 through 5, it, this is where I feel like it gets kind of difficult to explain. And I, I thought, you know, this, this seems to work something like what we call a transition statement. Uh, when I was taking preaching classes in seminary, they taught us, you need to make sure to write a transition statement. 
I bet I wrote hundreds of transition statements over six months. And a transition statement is how you go from one point to the next point without being all kind of confusing. It's a very clear sentence that gets you from this point to this point. And I think that's what we see here in verses 4 through 5. It's his transition point from their story to our story. Verses 4 through 5 steps back to explain why the author of Hebrews is able to move nonchalantly back and forth from using the idea of rest to refer to them in the wilderness generation, referring to Canaan, and then applying rest to our situation with the concept of heaven. Theologically, the land of Canaan is, is what we might call a physical extension of God's rest, which is what we see going on in this passage. He's making the point that Canaan's a, a physical extension of the spiritual rest that began during the creation week. On day number seven, when God had completed his work of creation, he rested. His rest began then. Canaan, later on in the story of the Bible, becomes a physical representation of this spiritual rest that began with God in the creation week. Thus, verse 5 quotes Psalm 95, 11, again, drawing attention to my rest, talking about God. Therefore, they will not enter my rest. They will never enter my rest. And this is all to help us to see this point as he's transitioning to us that God has given a new invitation into his rest through his son, Jesus. As we're looking, we don't need to just get totally caught up in the wilderness generation. This is applicable to us. He's using the lesson from them to teach us. And the lesson is, is that God has given us an invitation into his spiritual rest. Don't be like the wilderness generation and die on the wrong side of the Jordan. God has given us a new invitation into his rest through his son, Jesus. He does this in three steps. Verses 6 through 8 emphasize that if God's rest had been completed when the people went into Canaan under Joshua's leadership, if that was the end of it, then he wouldn't have spoken of another rest later on. But he did speak of another rest later on, about 500 years later, through a guy named King David, who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is writing down the 95th Psalm and begins to talk about, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. David could have said, today, instead of today, he could have said back then, 500 years ago, when Joshua led them into Canaan, but he didn't. He said, today, showing the ongoing relevance of this idea of rest. That's the first step. God has revealed this through his scriptures that rest is still open to us today. The next step is the spiritual rest initiated by God in the beginning is still offered to us today. <coughs> Verse 9 says this clearly. Therefore... A Sabbath rest remains for God's people. Well, how do we enter that rest? He tells us very plainly. The third step. We rest from our works by trusting in what Jesus has already accomplished for us. Verse 10. For the person who has entered his rest, talking about God's rest, has rested from his own works just as God did from his Jesus accomplished it all on the cross. When he took your place and my place, he took the punishment of your sin, of my sin, 
so that there is no more punishment for me that remains because I have trusted in Christ. I have entered into His rest. I believe that and I'm obedient to the gospel to repent and believe. The same invitation is to us today. Repent and believe the gospel. Enter into this rest through Jesus who's accomplished this rest already for us. So what's the application? If that's a broad perspective, stroke of what's going on here, of that story of the wilderness generation and our story today, what's the application? I think we get it in verse 11. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Don't be like the wilderness generation. Don't die on the wrong side of the Jordan. But doesn't that sound like an oxymoron? Let us make every effort to enter that rest. The ideas almost seem counterintuitive of one another, do they not? Let us do everything we can to enter into that rest, which we can only enter by faith and not by our own works, but make every effort to do it. How do we explain these things? How do we make efforts towards this? Well, I've got three things. First, we develop some staying power by seeing the betterness of Jesus. I think that's the consistent message throughout the entire book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. We're walking over the Jordan River, and it's a stormy river, and it seems like a mess sometimes, but keep pushing forward. See the betterness of Christ. Do not turn back. Don't stone your leaders. You don't put no rocks in your pockets on Sunday, right? Don't stone your leaders. Just keep pushing forward. Trusting God's Word through Christ. See the beauty of Christ, the betterness of Christ, and develop some staying power through that. That come what may, I will not turn away. The second thing I think we could do to make efforts towards this entering the rest is we seek to obey all God's Word, giving no room for a pattern of disobedience. Obey God's Word. Make obedience a pattern of your life. Not disobedience. You know, it's an interesting thing about disobedience. Just a little bit goes a long way, doesn't it? I mean, just, just a few minor places of disobedience, just a few areas of my heart that is unrepentant, it's amazing how quickly it can spread. It just blows up. Don't give any room in your heart. Don't give the devil a foothold anywhere. Don't let a pattern of disobedience, no matter how small, develop. When you sense disobedience, kill it. When you sense unrepentance, remove it. Get beyond it. Take your heart and bend it in an obedient posture towards the Word of God. Because that pattern of disobedience is what led the wilderness generation to die on the wrong side of the Jordan River. Don't let a pattern of disobedience develop. The last point, I love this, and all those pronouns, did y'all notice we didn't see any eyes? There's actually one I, but it's referring to God. The rest of the pronouns are collective pronouns. They refer to people, a group. We is better than I. And here's what I would tell you, brother and sister. Do yourself a favor and commit yourself wholehearted to the local church. Give yourself totally 
to the church and find there the richest resource God has given us in this life. One another. Each other. Blessed be the tie that binds. We sung it a couple of weeks ago. Look around at the faithful brothers and sisters. I said it a few weeks ago. You know what the, the chief means is look to your left and right on a Sunday morning. That's the tools God has given you to, to plow forward in the Christian life. It's not an individual thing. You're not in this boat alone. You're in it together. We is better than I. Brothers and sisters will serve to guard you from a pattern of disobedience that may land you on the wrong side of the Jordan. I'll tell you what. You get a group of brothers and sisters, a local church, holding you accountable, calling you to task, telling you to keep swimming, you're not going to end up on the wrong side of the Jordan. We make sure that each other do not fall into a pattern of disobedience. But trusting the Lord, walking forward, going on to Canaan, believing God's Word and obeying it at every point. Let me pray for us. Father, Thank you for this time tonight. Lord, this is a hard passage, but I love this passage. It encourages my heart. And so, Lord, I just pray for the brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, that we would see the betterness of your son, Jesus. That we would, through that grace of seeing him, Lord, develop some staying power that weathers the storms of life. And Lord, I pray I pray that we would guard our hearts against even the faintest pattern of disobedience. Lord, let us guard against it. Sin is so invasive. Lord, may we kill it when we sense even the slightest smell of it within our hearts. Give us hearts that are bent in repentance consistently. And Lord, give us faithfulness to one another. I just can't get it out of my mind, Father. Blessed be the tie that binds. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these brothers and sisters who are more than friends. They're my countrymen and countrywomen. They're pilgrims along with me going to the same destination. And that's pilgrims traveling in a group together. Lord, I pray we would make it our aim to look after one another, to care for one another, and to call one another onwards to the glorious promise you have for us. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time together. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to catch our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark on Sundays at 11 a.m., either at the church campus or on our Facebook live stream at Pepperell Baptist Church online. Have a great week. Blessings.